0: Summers, an Australian Test Cricket History Podcast. Episode 17 1894 95 vs. England The End of an Era. Upon their return from England, Blackham's tourists were flung into the 1893 94 Shield season. This summer was to be a continuation of the great renewal of Australian cricket. Older players such as Bannerman played their final first class games, whilst newer names sprung onto the scene that they would go on to dominate for a decade or more. In particular, South Australia truly arrived. Previously, they had been relying on a handful of players to win matches. George Giffen was arguably the best player in the country and could win games on his own, but apart from J.J. Lyons and Affy Jarvis, he often lacked support. The 1893-94 season saw Joe Darling and Jack Readman help strengthen the batting, both of whom would go on to play tests the following season. The big addition, though, was the arrival of Ernie Jones. A fastballer who also played Australian rules football, Jones' pace was new to the Australian game and was compared to the Surrey Speeds of Tom Richardson. Jones took 19 wickets at 20 for the season, In the final game, which South Australia needed to win to claim the shield, Jones took 5 for 73 in the final innings to bowl South Australia to victory. Meanwhile, another tour of Australia by the English was in the works. In January 1894, the Melbourne and Sydney Cricket Clubs agreed to combine their resources to fund a tour. They invited Andrew Stoddart to lead this tour, hoping to build on the popularity generated by Grace's side three years previously. Stoddart was seen as a strong choices leader, with his unpretentious style going down well compared to the bombastic nature of Grace. Stoddart was able to gain the services of the doctor, as well as Shrewsbury and Stanley Jackson, whilst Lohman remained out of commission due to his tuberculosis. Despite this, Stoddart was still able to put together a strong side. Familiar faces Bobby Peel and Johnny Briggs toured, whilst Albert Ward, Bill Lockwood, Hilton Philipson, Bill Brockwell and Tom Richardson had all played against Australia in either of the previous two series. Rounding out the squad was five debutants: right-handed batsman John Brown and Walter Humphreys, left-hander Francis Ford, keeper Leslie Gay and future English captain Archie McLaren. The team was scheduled to feature in matches in all Australian colonies by Western Australia and would play five tests, the first series of such length for a decade. The English travelled to Australia and arrived on the 30th of October, landing in Adelaide. They arrived in time of economic turmoil. Many Australian banks had collapsed, including the bank used by the Melbourne Club, which had underwrote the tour. This could have potentially led to the aborting of the Tour, but the intervention of a loan organised by the club president meant the Tour could proceed. Following a match against Gawler, the English faced South Australia at the Adelaide Oval. This meant coming up against George Giffen, who had spent the winter training hard for this season, running miles and staying hours in the nets. This paid off for the South Australian great as he led his side to a six-wicket win, despite conceding 477 in the first innings. He took 11 wickets in the match and scored half centuries in each innings. Joe Darling also established himself as a player by scoring 117 in the first innings. 25,000 people, the largest crowd for a match in Adelaide, had witnessed the game. Despite this loss, the English followed up in the next three first-class games with wins, defeating Victoria, New South Wales and Queensland. McLaren scored a magnificent 228 against Victoria whilst Frank Ardell's 100 for New South Wales went in vain. Despite the presence of former Australian captain Percy MacDonald, Queensland were thrashed by an innings and 274 runs, with Tom Richardson taking 11 for the match. As such, the English were in top form heading into the first test in Sydney beginning in early December. The English chose to give Gay a debut as a keeper ahead of Phillipson, whilst Humphreys was also left out of the 11. The Australian selection was much more intriguing. Alec Bannerman had retired, whilst Trumbull, Bruce, Robert McLeod and Graham were left out of the side from the previous tour. Graham was the most surprising, giving his good form in England, but he had done little for New South Wales in the ongoing Sheffield Shield season. The team featured five new players, including Reedman, Darling and Jones from South Australia, Frank Iredale from New South Wales and McLeod's brother Charles, an all-rounder from Victoria. They were joined by Lions, Harry Trott, Giffen, Gregory and Turner. Blackham continued as both wicketkeeper and captain. The first day of the test, which was to be a timeless one, played until the conclusion, saw brilliant sunshine and a flat pitch. Blacken won the toss and had no hesitation in choosing to bat. Despite Alec's retirement, there would still be abandonment involved as Charles was acting as one of the umpires. The Australians opened with Lyons and Trot, whilst Richardson and Peel operated for the English. The speedster from Surrey would dominate the first portion of the match. Despite having been in poor form in the lead-up games, Richardson ripped through the Australian top order, bowling Lyons, Trot and Darling to lead the Australians at 3 for 21. Darling on debut suffered a golden duck as Richardson ran rampant. At this point, Giffen was joined by another debutant in Iredale. Despite the early wickets, both batsmen trusted in the benign nature of the pitch, choosing to attack the bowling. Iredale had a let-off when he should have been run out, but a fumble from the keeper Gay saw him get home safe. The two managed to see through to lunch with a score on 78, with Giffen having scored 40. Iredale commenced following lunch with two boundaries off Briggs. Giffen raised his 50 as the Australians passed 100 and celebrated by lifting Briggs straight over his head for five. The scoring continued to increase with the English bowling changes having little impact. Giffen raced into the 90s whilst Iredale also managed to pass 50 on debut. Richardson returned to the bowling crease and managed to catch the edge of Giffen's bat, but Gay dropped it after two attempts. Iredale was motoring on 81 just before the tee break, but the introduction of the left arm as a led him to hitting a catch to sod up. He had put on an excellent 171 with Giffen as the Australians went to tee at 4 for 192. Gregory joined with Giffen following tee. The great South Australian brought up his 100 soon after with a lakeside boundary off Richardson, his first such score in Test cricket. Tewon came up with a single off the next ball. The loss of Iredale slowed the scoring little, as Gregory provided great support to Giffen, with strong drives and cuts a feature of his play. The partnership first went past 50 and then 100. The two batsmen bring this up in under an hour's batting. Gregory passed 50 whilst Giffen moved into the 150s as the 300 came up. The Australians batting then slowed as stumps approached, but Given was unable to see the side through, falling at 3:31 to a catch by Ford off Brockwell. He had made a magnificent 161 in just over four hours, with 22 fours and a five. Reedman joined Gregory, and the two saw through to the close, with Gregory hitting Richardson for two fours in the last over of the day to take his score on to 85 not out. The Australians had made an imposing five for 3:46 on the first day's play, and looked set to take the game away from the English. The excellent Australian batting of day one inspired 24,000 fans to attend day two, breaking the daily attendance record. The English were without the services of Lockwood, who had fallen ill the previous day. Readman was dropped on seven by Brockwell and was then struck a blow over the heart by Richardson, although he was fine to continue. Gregory brought up his maiden test century to much applause from the large crowd, who lost his partner and next over to Peel. McLeod helped take the score to 400 before he became Richardson's fourth victim, whilst Turner could only manage the single. This left the Australians at 8 for 409, the new batsman being the Australian captain and 35 test veteran Jack Blackham. Jack McCarthy Blackham was born on the 11th of May 1854 in Fitzroy, Victoria. The son of a news agent, Blackham excelled early, playing for Carlton Cricket Club as a 16-year-old before debuting for Victoria in 1874. His skill as a keeper was apparent early, so much so that he was selected for what would become the first ever test match ahead of Billy Murdoch, leading to Fred Spother's withdrawing from that inaugural match. Blackham's skill with the gloves in that game convinced both New South Welshmen that he was the superior gloveman in the country, leaned to both participating in the second match. Blackham was such a consistent keeper that he virtually eliminated the need for a long-stop fielder behind the keeper to prevent buys. He was comfortable both up to the stumps or standing back, and consistently pulled off amazing catches and stumpings, being called the Prince of Wicker Keepers. Since the commencement of Test cricket he had been a mainstay, only missing four of the Test matches played up to that point, three in the summer of 1884-85 due to disputes with the board. He'd taken on the captaincy with some success, while he was an inveterate warrior that often put his teammates ill at ease. His skills had faded as he approached 40, but he was still a first-choice selection and provided stubbornness with the bat to go with his keeping abilities. The next hour and a half of batting was a blur. Gregory and Blackham took advantage of a tired attack to put on runs quickly. They broke for lunch at 443, and soon after the resumption a communication error almost led to a run-out. Other than this, there was little opportunity given to the English as the milestones continued to pass by. Gregory's 150 came up at a quarter to three, whilst Blacken brought up the 500 with a nick through the slips to loud applause. Giffen's score of 161 was passed by Gregory as he moved towards converting his maiden century into a double, bringing it up with a boundary straight back over the bowler's head, again to much admiration from the crowd. Finally, Stoddart turned to himself and was immediately successful, having Gregory well caught on the boundary by Peel for 201, equal to the highest score by an Australian at that time, with Murdoch's 1884 effort. He batted for just over four hours and he hit 28 fours. In partnership with Blackham, he had put on 154 runs in just over an hour's batting. This remains the highest partnership by any Australian pair for the ninth wicket almost 130 years later. Blackham, who had moved past his own 50, was joined by Jones, with the two taking the score under 586 before Blackham was bowled by Richardson for 74, his highest test score. Richardson was the pick of the English bowlers, taking five wickets, but they had cost him 181 runs. The English commenced their chase of the imposing Australian score with McLaren and Ward opening. The Australians began with a debutant Jones with Turner at the other end. McLaren fell cheaply, caught by Reidman at cover point for 4 off Turner. The captain Stoddart replaced him. The two batsmen were handling the pace of Jones comfortably, with each finding the point boundary, leading to his replacement by Giffen. This had an immediate impact, with the off-spinner having Stoddart caught at slip for 12. Brown entered at 2 for 43, with Trott replacing Turner at the bowling crease. This took some pressure off the English, as Trot was scored off comfortably, with Brown taking 10 off 1-over. However, soon after, Brown responded slowly to Ward's call for a single and was run out by Lyons from mid-on. Brockwell skied his first ball towards mid-off, but it landed safe. The two managed to see through the remaining time until stumps without further loss. Ward managed to pass his 50, as the English finished the day on 3 for 130, still a mammoth 456 behind the Australian's first-inning score. Showers greeted the players on the third day, leading to a delay in the start of play. There was enough time following the commencement for McLeod to drop a simple chance at point from Brockwell off Turner before rain sent the players from the field again. Another six overs were possible before lunch, with the only notable event being an edge from Ward falling just sort of slip. Ward, who had moved into the 70s, launched Turner high towards the pavilion. Iredale ran back and caught the ball right on the fence, ending the English Openers innings on 75, with a team one short of 150. New batsman Peel survived a drop chance when he hadn't scored, but couldn't capitalise, falling for four. Brockwell found a more stable partner in Ford, with the two progressing the score on to 200 by 10 past three in the afternoon. When the score reached 211, the Australians achieved a double strike. Given tempted Ford from his crease to have him stumped by Blackham, while the Australian keeper dropped the ball as he was completed the stumping, with Ford questioning the legitimacy of the dismissal on his way back to the pavilion. In the next over, Jones claimed his maiden test wicket by having Brockwell edge a ball to Blackham, one short of 50. Only three wickets remained for the English at this point, but Briggs and Lockwood took them through to tee without further loss with a score at 246. Lockwood fell shortly after T for 18, a catched a Giffen at cover point off trot. The new batsman gay almost fell soon after, but was dropped at slip. The two batsmen took advantage, sealing singles through judicious running. Despite cycling through the bowlers, Blacken was unable to force a dismissal, with a three on cutting up just after 5 pm. Briggs brought up the 50 before Giffen finally broke the partnership, splattering the English batsman stumps for 57. Having put on 73 runs for the ninth wicket, the English failed to add another, with Gay falling in the next over to Readman for 33. This closed the English innings on 325. As this was still 261 runs behind, there was a little surprise when Blackham asked them to follow on, although there was not enough time in the left in the day for the English second innings to commence. Warden McLaren opened up the English second innings at the beginning of day four. The Australians were without the services of Blackham. He had suffered a serious injury to his son the day before and was already being suggested it would be many weeks before he would be available to play again. McLeod took the gloves, whilst Harry Graham acted as a substitute fielder. The English started cautiously, scoring 19 runs in the first half hour. Ward scored the first boundary of the day off Giffen with a shot to the leg-side boundary, as the total moved on to the 40s. At this point, Giffen struck clean-bowling McLaren in middle stump for 20. Sutter joined Ward and the two took the score beyond 50. At this point, Giffen caught the edge of Ward's bat, but inexperienced keeper McLeod dropped it, a miss that would prove costly. The English made it to lunch at 65 without further loss. Following the break, Jones proved expensive, bowling too short with the English cutting him to the boundary numerous times. Stoddart also managed to hit the usually frugal Giffen for successive boundaries. They took the score past 100 and were he increasingly confident, but a lapse from Stoddart saw him spoon a catch-off Turner to Giffen at cover, dismissing the English captain for 36 with a score at 115, still trailing by 136 runs. Brown joined with Ward, who soon after moved past his first-inning score of 75. The 150 came up soon after, before Ward just barely avoided being out-caught and bowled. The ball just falling short of Trot's diving hands. They survived to tea without further incident, with Ward having moved within two runs of a century. After tea, McLeod was tried with the ball, with Reuben taking the gloves. This failed to affect Ward, he brought up his 100 soon after the resumption of play. The score moved past 200 before Ward was finally dismissed, with Giffen finding a gap in his defences to clean bowl him for 117, an innings made over four hours and including 11 fours. At three for 217, they were now within 44 runs of making Australia bat again. Brockwell joined Brown, who soon passed 50, but was dismissed soon after with the score on a 245, another victim of Giffen. In conjunction with Peel, Brockwell wiped the remainder of the deficit and took the English to 268 at stumps, a lead of 7 with 6 wickets still in hand. The fifth day started with a couple of close calls, with both Peel and Brockwell attempting the field with some close catching attempts. Brockwell made his way to 37 before Jones' extra pace breached his defences and rattled his stumps, leaving the English at 5 for 290. His overnight partner Peel didn't last longer either inside edging a ball from Giffen onto his pad that then rolled onto the stumps, dislodging a bow six runs after Brockwell had fallen. The new pairing of Briggs and Ford managed to take the score past 300, but Giffen tempted Ford from his crease soon after. However, replacement keeper McLeod failed to complete the stumping, again showing the absence of Blackham. Ford took advantage of the life by hitting Jones for two pull-shot boundaries in an over. Turner and Trott were tried, and the latter nearly got a wicket, with Briggs skying a ball to deep square leg, but Graham, the substitute fielded, squandered a regulation chance. This allowed them to take the score into to 344 at lunch without further loss. Following the return, the English batsman attacked. Briggs put Trot back over his head, whilst Ford hit Giffen for two boundaries in an over. The English lead pushed past 100, and the challenge for the Australians was becoming more difficult. Finally, McLeod was relieved of the gloves and tried with the ball, gaining the breakthrough by having Ford caught and bowl for 48, having put on an invaluable 89 with Briggs. Briggs continued on in partnership with Lockwood, but fell with the score too short of 400, another victim of McLeod. The final two wickets managed to take the score on to 437, with Trott finishing the innings off. Giffen was again the pick of the bowlers with four wickets, but had come in for some punishment, going for 164 runs in 75 overs. The English crafted a lead of 176, much better than many thought possible, but on a pitch that was still playing true, the Australians had a big advantage. Trott and Lions commenced the chase for the Australians. Lyon started in his usual style, hitting Richardson over the slips of four in the first over. The Dasher raced at 25 out of the first 26 scored, before Richardson was too accurate for a wild slog played by the South Australian. He was replaced by Giffen, who batted much more cautiously. Richardson had to go off sick, leaving the bowling in the hands of Peel and Lockwood. The Australians avoided risk as much as possible, but Trott fell with the score reached 45, having only made 8, caught by the keeper off Peel. This brought Darling to the crease. The debutant avoided a pair and took to Peel, hitting him for multiple boundaries and helping to get the deficit down into double digits. Briggs was tried in Peel's place, but had little impact as the score continued to grow approaching stumps. The Australians ended the day on two for 113, with Given on 30 and Darling on 44. The Australians only required 64 runs to win. However, ominously, as the players were leaving the ground, dark clouds were rolling in. It rained heavily throughout the night, drenching the uncovered pitch. The clouds cleared by morning with brilliant sunshine drying the ground. This created the worst possible conditions for batting, a sticky wicket. The game, which had been played in almost perfect batting conditions to this point, now became a bowler's paradise. Blackham was already worrying before the resumption, pacing up and down the dressing room and bemoaning their cruel luck. The English saw their opportunity, crowding the batsmen as they returned to the crease. At first things went well for the Australians, with Darling launching Peel into the grandstand for 5, bringing up his first Test 50. However, this was his last act as he was caught by Brockwell at Long on, trying to hit another maximum off the bowling of Peel for 53. Gregory joined Giffen. Giffen was living dangerously, surviving an LBW appeal, followed by a drop chance by Brown. The arrival of Briggs ended the innings of the great Australian all-rounder, as he was trapped LBW first ball from the new bowler, out for 41. This left the Australians at 4 for 135, still needing 42 runs to win. Iredale and Gregory both tried to be patient, but Briggs tempted the former into skying a catch back to the bowler. Gregory was then joined by Reedman. They took the score to 158 before they were both out within a run of each other, both falling victim to Peel. Readman was somewhat unlucky, charging and missing a ball. Gay failed to glove it cleanly, but it bounced off his chest onto the stumps before Readman could return to his crease. The strains were now seven for 159. Turner and Jones both fell to Briggs for two and one respectively, leaving only the injured Blackham to partner McLeod in getting the 16 runs required for the final wicket. They had put on five before Blackham, struggling to hold the bat due to his injured thumb, only managing to pat the ball back to Peel for a simple catch, giving the English an astounding victory by only 10 runs. Peel and Briggs had done the damage on a sticky pitch, taking six and three wickets respectively. The Australians, having been in a commanding position, had lost eight wickets for 36 runs, losing a game they'd seen destined to win only 24 hours before, becoming the first side to lose after making the opposition team following on. His dismissal that ended the match marked the end of the test career of Jack Blackham. The thumb injury he sustained was so severe that he never kept wicket again. He was the final playing league to the first ever test match and was a titanic figure in early cricket, one of the players that can be argued truly changed the way the game is played with his keeping ability. He would also have the honour of being one of the inaugural inductees to the Australian Cricket Hall of Fame in 1996. Without him, the Australians would now have to replace both their wicket-keeper and their captain before the second test beginning at the end of December in Melbourne. Giffen was named captain of the Australians for the Melbourne test, being the most experienced player following Blackham's departure, although Harry Trott was also in consideration, but declined to put his name forward. Afi Jarvis, who had long been Blackham's understudy on tours of England, came in as Australian Keeper. They also made three other changes. and Jones and McLeod all went out, to be replaced by Bruce, Hugh Trumbull and Arthur Cunningham, who would finally be making his debut following the 1893 Tour of England. The visitors also made one change, with Gay's poor performance behind the stumps, seeing him replaced by Philipson. The Melbourne curator had a habit of covering the pitch prior to games to protect it from cracking. However, it was established custom that if it rained, the cover should be removed. Because of this, a storm the day before the scheduled start of the game saw the pitch drenched. As such, when giving won the toss, he had little hesitation in sending English in to bat. McLaren faced the first ball from debutant Coningham on a ground where a month prior he had scored a magnificent double century against Victoria. On this occasion, he couldn't even last a single ball, with Conningham catching the shoulder of his bat to be easily caught at point. This was the first occasion the wicket had fallen the very first ball of a test match and had set the tone for the rest of the day's play. Sutter joined with Ward and the two steadied somewhat. Ward hit the first runs off Turner, while Sodder hit a couple of tempters that Iredale nearly reached for a catch, soon after he was struck on the elbow by Turner. This seemed to shake him up to the point that he missed a ball the next over from the same bowler to be clean bowled. The next two batsmen then fell for ducks, with Turner and Cottingham claiming a wicket apiece. Peel joined Ward and the two looked to be building a partnership, leading to Cottingham's replacement by Trumbull. Ward hit the first ball he faced from the Victorian for four, but Trumbull soon got his revenge, having Ward caught by Darling at cover for 30. This left the English at five for 44. There was no recovery for them, as they consistently lost wickets to the bowling of Turner and Trumbull, eventually being dismissed to 75 after only 40 overs of batting. Turner, who couldn't ask for a better pitch for his style of bowling, ended with 5 for 32, whilst Trumbull also claimed his best figures to this point of his career with 3 for 15, whilst also taking two excellent catches at slip, his long arms allowing him to get to balls that others couldn't reach. The Australians had almost done too good a job, however. They'd bowled the English out so quickly that the pitch was still very difficult for batting. This played out as the Australian Openers Lyons and Bruce both fell at the time the score was 12, with one each to Richardson and Peel. Gregory fell shortly after, trying to cut Richardson but only managed to guide the ball to slip. This brought Darling in to join Giffen. Darling dominated the partnership, choosing to hit out against the challenging bowling. He hit Richardson for a boundary before launching Lockwood into the crowd. He found the boundary twice more, taking his score onto 32, before Lockwood had his revenge, bowling the young South Australian with a score of 53. As new batsman Iredale built a partnership with Giffen, Stoddart turned to Briggs, posting three fields at Long On, but this tactic had little impact as Giffen drove one into the off to take the Australians past English first inning score with six wickets in hand. However, once again the match turned. Richardson beat Iredale with a beauty, clipping his bail to miss him at 80. From here, the Australians struggled to build partnerships, with English taking consistent wickets. Giffen fell to Briggs for 32 after over 100 minutes of batting, although the Australian captain argued he was unfairly dismissed, claiming the ball hit the pad rather than his bat before heading through to the keeper. Trott, Conningham and Jarvis all made it double figures, but when Jarvis was last out with a score at 123, the Australians felt they had missed an opportunity to take control of the match. Again, Richardson was the pick of the English bowlers, taking 5 for 57 off 23 overs. Whilst Briggs claimed two, the last of which saw him equal Fred Spother's record of 94 test wickets. The day ended with the Australians having a lead of 48 runs. As observers arrive for Dave 2, they noticed how much better the pitch was looking and predicted much heavier run scoring to take place. Conningham opened the bowling, looking to repeat his first ball efforts from the previous innings, but McLaren calmly turned it away for a single. Whilst given it the other end was tidy, Conningham was taken for boundaries by both McLaren and his opening partner Ward and was replaced by Turner with a score on 24. This proved a masterstroke as McLaren attempted a wild swing against the Terror, only to be clean bowled for 15. He was replaced by his captain, with Stoddart and Ward settling in, playing safe cricket while still turning the scoreboard over. The Australian lead was wiped out after only an hour of batting, with Stoddart celebrating this by lifting a ball over the long-off boundary for five. At 66, Trot was tried, but as often was the case, scoring was easy against the loopy league spinner, with the English heading to lunch at 1 for 78. Following the lunch break, the score continued to grow, despite Trumbull replacing Trot at the bowling crease. The score moved past 100 before the Australians made their second breakthrough, with Ward falling to Turner for 41, bowled off his pads. One almost brought two as Stoddart played one into the slips, but was missed by Iredale. In partnership with new batsman Brown, Stoddart took his score past 50 with an all-run five and was handling the bowling with ease. Giffen returned to himself, but Stoddart put away first-ball full toss to the square leg boundary. Brown compiled his runs without fuss as the two moved towards team. Giffen continued to bowl without success, with the crowd giving him some friendly advice to bowl Trumbull instead, who was seemingly being underutilised. On the stroke of T, Bruce was tried and made the breakthrough, having Ward caught by a diving Jarvis at 37. This saw the English go to the break at 3 for 191, with Stoddart one big hit short of his century, New batsman Brockwell hit his first ball to square league for 4 upon the resumption. Turner then gave Stoddart a gift to bring up his 100, a full toss outside leg stump, with the crowd providing generous applause for his achievement. With the 200 up, Brockwell sped up the scoring rate, lofting two more balls to the boundary. Turner switched ends at this point and again jagged a wicket, with Brockwell playing onto his stumps for 21. With this wicket, Turner became part of a three-way tie for the most wickets in Test Cricket, joining Spotherth and Briggs. This brought Peel to the crease. He played an anchor role while Stutter did most of the scoring. Whilst Giffen troubled him at times, he was able to find twos and threes fairly comfortably, building upon the already impressive English lead. He took his score into the 150s just before the close of play, with the Australians unable to make any further breakthroughs before stumps were called. The English ended the day on 4 for 287, giving them an imposing lead of 239 with 6 wickets in hand. Huge crowds flocked to Day 3, which happened to be New Year's Day, with train carriages overflowing with patrons wanting to see the cricket. The 21,000 who attended saw the English continue to build upon their advantage. Stoddart began with a cut shot off Giffen for four, whilst another shot behind point brought up the Team 300. At the other end, Peel was almost stumped, but managed to get a sliver of his foot behind the line. Giffen started a new over to Stoddart, who managed to find the boundary in consecutive balls. However, Giffen finally trapped his opposite number, beating him all ends up to bowl him. Stoddard ended on a masterful 173, made in over five hours of batting, with 15 fours and 1-5. His replacement Ford began entertainingly, taking the bowlers on by driving at every opportunity. He made it to lunch without losing his wicket, whilst Peel had moved to 40, with the English going to the break, 5 for 350. Peel survived an LVW shout from Giffen upon the resumption, and continued to play cautiously. Ford could only add 5 to his total before slicing a ball off Giffen to trot at point to be out for 24. Briggs joined Peel, and the two took the score past 385, with Peel going to his half-century. At this point, Giffen managed to spin one past Peel's bat as he came down the wicket to have him stumped by Jarvis for 53. With Lockwood for company, Briggs took the score past 400 with a series of boundaries. He survived a chance off trot when the normally safe hands of Gregory failed to complete the catch, but fell soon after lbw to Giffen for his 4th of the innings. Wicketkeeper Phillipson joined Lockwood, and the two proceeded to put on 53 for the ninth wicket. The Australians tried five bowlers to dismiss the pair. It was once again Giffen who struck, bowling Phillipson for 30 to claim his 5th wicket. Final man Richardson helped take the score to 475 before given again struck, ending with his 6th wicket. Lockwood remained undefeated on 33. After 20 wickets fell on the first day, the match had flipped dramatically, with every English batsman reaching double figures. The inability of the Australians to build pressure with consecutive wickets had led the English to build a commanding 427 run lead. The pitch remained good for batting, and the Australians, opening with Trot and Bruce, started well. They handled the pace of Richardson with ease, sending him to the boundary multiple times, whilst providing no chances to the English fielders. Bruce sweated on anything short to unleash his pull shot, whilst Trot drove and glanced with fluency. The 50 was raised in only 40 minutes of batting. Briggs was then tried, but Trot took him for 14 off his first over. The two batsmen made it through to stumps undefeated, both on 43. And none for 86, the Australians had put the first 10 into chasing the mammoth English target. 10,000 spectators arrived for the fourth day, eager to see how the Australian innings would progress. Bruce started strong, moving quickly to his 50, before he jammed his bat into the ground trying to cut peel, leaving the ball to balloon to start out at a point. Bruce had made 54 out of an excellent opening partnership of 98. He was replaced by the Australian captain Giffen, who immediately brought up the Team 100 with a shot to leg off Peel. The scoring then slowed, with Richardson in particular pegging Trot back onto his stumps, almost dismissing the Victorian. Trot survived, though, and brought up his own 50 with an edge through the slips. The two batsmen hoped to wear out Richardson to make him easy to face, but Soddock was ahead of them, removing the speedster before he looked to be flagging. The two batsmen continued back cautiously until tea, with the Giffen drive being the only second boundary of the morning as lunch was taken with the score on 1 for 149, with Trott having moved into the 60s. The score moved quicker after lunch, with both players finding the boundary as Briggs came in for some punishment. The score moved on to the 190s before Sottart turned to the seldom-used Brockwell. This proved a masterstroke, as he generated a leading edge from Giffen to have the Australian captain caught a point by Brown for 43. He put on 93 for the second wicket with Trott, giving the Australians a great platform for 2 for 191. Still needing 237 runs to win, but from here the game began to shift. Gregory joined Trot, who was approaching his main Test century. The opener moved into the 90s and took the score past 200 before he bunted the ball back to Brockwell. He took the catch low down. Trot's 95 had taken almost four hours and included six fours. From here, though, the resistance of the innings began to collapse. Darling joined Gregory, but the two were soon out with after within two runs of each other, leaving the Australians at five at 216. Iredale and Lions combined to see the side through to T at 2.31. The following a resumption of play, Lions played a big drive off Peel, only to edge the ball back onto the Sumps for 12. This saw another collapse, with the Australians losing a further three wickets for only 27 runs, leaving only Iredale and Turner as the finer pair, still requiring over 150 runs to win. With the game almost gone, the two batsmen batted free of expectation. Ardell, who had stood strong with the wickets tumbling at the other end, hit some glorious drives to pick up his second Test 50 in as many matches. With Turner also batting well, the two managed to see through the close of play at 9 for 328. The batsmen were warmly applauded by the crowd for their resistance, even the result of the game was beyond doubt. The fifth day lasted just under two overs. Ardell took five runs off the first over, before playing over a rank-long hop from Peel to lose his stumps, dismissing him for 68. Turner remained 26 not out as the Australians were dismissed for 333, losing the match by 94 runs. The English, who had started on day one so poorly, had recovered superbly to take a 2-0 lead in the series. The series headed to Adelaide for the third test. The Australians, needing to win to stay in the series, made four changes. Out went Cunningham, Trumbull, Lyons and Turner, the latter of whom was suffering from a mild injury. Jack Worrell, who had last played a test on the 1888 tour, was recalled along with Sid Callaway. The team also saw two debutants from Victoria batsman Jack Harry, and all-rounder Albert Trott, brother of Harry. The English run changed from the side that had succeeded a week prior to the MCG. Local hero Given won the toss and elected to bat on a hard wicket in front of 5,000 fans. The heat was approaching oppressive levels as the players made their way out to play. Harry, Trott and Bruce opened as they had done in the previous test, and started as they had left off, with Bruce hitting Richardson for two fours, whilst Trott also went after Peel, bringing up 20 runs in only five minutes of play. When the score reached 31, Bruce survived a high catching chance, with McLaren dropping a simple take much to the delight of the local fans. Bruce was unable to capitalize on this however, it was out with having added to his score when he was bowled by Richardson. This brought the captain to the crease to wild applause from his home supporters. He watched on the other end as Trot took charge of the run making, being particularly harsh on Richardson. The score moved on to 68 before Richardson was replaced. Trot had made his way to 48 by this stage with eight boundaries. Giffen was much more sedate. He faced up to Peel, who appealed for LBW as the ball hit the pad. This was denied, but Giffen had set off for a run. Trot responded, was caught short of his ground, an unfortunate way to end what was shaping up to be an excellent innings. Iredale joined Giffen, and the two went through to lunch at two for 80. Following the lunch break, Iredale fell without adding to his score. Richardson to another set of stumps. Giffen was joined by his South Australian compatriot, Darling. The score remained at 84 for some time before Darling managed to get some singles away. The score then moved slowly beyond 100 when Darling, who had just reached double figures, followed the bowling change, skying a ball off Briggs for first over to be caught by the keeper. This led to a collapse, with Gregory, Harry and Worrell all falling cheaply. Worrell managed to run himself out by setting off for an impossible run. Richardson claimed the other two. This left Giffen, who had just reached his 50, to try to build something from 7 for 137. Wicketkeeper Jarvis joined him and the two looked to get through to tee, with Jarvis playing some pugnacious cricket. However, in the last over before the break, Jarvis managed to bunt the ball back to Lockwood to be caught and bowled, leaving the Australians at 8 for 157. This immediately became 9 for 157 upon the resumption of play, as Giffen fell to Brockwell for 58. This left the final pairing of debutant Albert Trott and Sid Calloway. However, English hopes of quickly wrapping up things were soon dashed as Trott began smashing Lockwood over the rope for five. This set the tone for the final wicket partnership. Callaway joined in with two boundaries himself, helping get the Australians past 200. The two batsmen took advantage of some flagging English fielding, with Trot hitting an all-run five straight down the ground. Callaway then hit Brockwell for four to take his score into the 40s. With a score of 238, Richardson returned to the bowling crease and finally ended the innings with his fifth wicket, bowling Callaway for 41. Trott was undefeated on 38 as part of a final wicket stand of 81 that had given the Australians a decent total, although one most observers thought was low given the conditions. The English only had 10 minutes to bat, which they survived without loss to the end of the day at number 5. 12,000 people arrived for the second day's play, a Saturday. McLaren and Briggs resumed in similar conditions to the previous day. After an over from Albert Trott, Giffen and Callaway took up the attack. Briggs took his score onto 12 before Callaway disturbed his stumps. New batsman Brockwell matched Briggs' effort, but fell to the same bowler. Ward joined McLaren at 2-for-30 and looked to rebuild the innings. They made it to one short of 50 before Ward attempted to hit Giffen out of the ground, but could only sky-ball to Bruce, who took the ball comfortably in front of the Smokers' pavilion to loud cheers. English captain Stoddart came to the crease, but could only manage a single before he was bowled by his counterpart. McLaren, who had held firm as wickets fell at the other end, made his way to 25 before he too was dismissed, bowled by Callaway. The crowd, which included Blackham and Turner, roared their approval as the players took lunch. Brown and Peel commenced after the break, but Peel was bowled by Callaway soon after without registering a score. Ford joined with Brown and the two then built the most substantial partnership of the innings. Brown in particular handled Giffen with ease, sending him to the boundary on multiple occasions. He also survived a crowd catch where he smacked a bump ball back to Callaway. The two took the score past 100 and looked to be causing some trouble for the Australians before Ford tamely spooned a ball to, off Giffen to Warrell to be out for 21. Lockwood then fell second ball to the same combination. English were now 8 for 111, still 8 short of the follow on target. This was saved as new batsman Phillipson hit given to the boundary, but was out soon after calling the boundary by Gregory off the same bowler, giving the Australian captain another five-wicket haul. Callaway also claimed his fifth-wicket when Wicherton was dismissed for a duck to end innings on 124. Brown was undefeated on 39 as the Australians took a 114-run lead into their second innings. The capitulation of the English was a surprise to many, but the conditions had played a part with many of the players suffering from exhaustion due to the hot conditions. The English made the best possible start when Harry Trott played to Peel without a run on the board. New batsman Giffen joined with the other opener Bruce and the two looked to take advantage of the good conditions before suspected bad weather would change the complexion of the pitch. Giffen took charge, hitting Richardson for three boundaries whilst Bruce batted in his usual aggressive style. When he had scored 21 runs, Griffin reached 1,000 runs in Test Cricket, the second Australian to do so after Alec Bannerman. He was out soon after, though, being caught by Ford off Peel for 24, with a score at 44. Now partnered with Eyedale, Bruce cut loose. All the bowlers came in for punishment, no matter who started Cycled through the crease. He passed 50, the fifth time he had done so in Test Cricket, and took 19 off a of Lockwood over. The score raced past 100 as the close-of-play approach, with Bruce moving into the 80s. At this point, Briggs was tried and struck first ball, with Bruce guying a ball into deep square leg. He received loud applause for his 110-minute innings, which included 11 boundaries. Darling came to the wicket, but could only manage three runs before being out on what ended up being the last ball of the day, caught behind off Lockwood. Iredale, who had batted with a limp after being struck on the lead, had made it to the end of the day, undefeated on 31. Following the rest day, play resumed when Gregory joined Iredale at the crease. Iredale survived early when Peel dropped a return chance when he moved to 41. He had more fortune a couple of overs later when Richardson caught the edge of his bat, but Phillipson failed to complete a simple catch. When Ford went to the bowling crease, he positioned all his fielders on the offside, but Irdal stepped across and whipped him for a boundary on the leg side, bringing up his 50. Gregory had started slow, but got moving with the three off bricks, followed by a cut for four off Richardson. This was his last act though, as Richardson got his revenge, bowling Gregory for 20. Harry joined Irdal at 597, but could only make six, as he was dismissed the same way as his first innings knock, bowled by Richardson and Worrell hit Richardson to the point boundary first ball, with a to Briggs for 11 shortly after. The Australians reached 238 at this stage, a lead of 352, as number 8 Jarvis came to the crease, with Iredale having moved into the 80s. Jarvis started with some hard hitting, opening his account with three boundaries. Iredale showed no signs of concern as he moved into the 90s. He reached 96 before late cutting a ball. With a tired English field is giving chase, the batsman managed to scamper an all-run four to bring up Iredale's maiden test century. He sank to the ground exhausted as the crowd roared at their approval. Jarvis continued to hit out, but was not too pleased to be given out caught at point off Peel, having believed the catch wasn't completed legally. He was replaced by Albert Trott with the score on 283. He survived an early run-out chance and looked to be circumspect. Iredale pushed the lead past 400 and continued to bat impressively. He removed his score on 140 before a miscued drive was accepted by Peel. His innings lasted for four hours and included seventeen fours. He fell with the score on three hundred and forty seven, leaving only Callaway to partner Trott. With only the last wicket remaining, Trott unleashed all his shots, peppering the boundaries. In particular, he confidently played balls over the fielders' heads to the rope. He quickly moved to his maiden test fifty and then into the seventies. The score had moved past four hundred, and a fairy tale sentry on debut looked to be on the cards for Trott. However, he ran out of partners as Callaway was bowled by Richardson for eleven, leaving Trott stranded on seventy-two. Peel had been the pick of the bowlers with four wickets, whilst Richardson had taken three. The Australian total of 411 left the English with a mountain to climb, chasing 526 for victory. The English had just over an hour left to bat in the day. McLaren and Ward opened, facing the destroyers of the first innings, Callaway and Giffen. The two batsmen handled them comfortably, though, and steadily built the English total. After 14 overs, Callaway was replaced by Albert Trott with the score approaching 50. At this point, the innings shifted. Trott missed out on claiming his first test wicket when his brother Harry dropped a difficult chance off McLaren, but he did not have to wait long to claim the Englishman's scalp, having him caught in the outfield by Ardale for 35. Sodot came to the crease, but without a run being added, the other open award also fell to Trot, bowl for 13. Given then struck, bowling Phillipson for one. The English had lost three wickets for one run, having only reached 52. Sodot was joined by Brown, and the two managed to get to stumps without further loss on 56, still trailing by a mammoth 470 runs. Prior to the start of the day's play, an admirer of Albert Trott wired the Australian team and stated it would give a guinea for every wicket the Victorian claim in the second innings. Having already claimed two, Trott started the day in fine form, claiming Brown with only six runs added to the overnight score, having the English batsman edge a ball onto the stumps. Brockwell joined Stotter and the two closed up shop, making little effort to score, much to the derision of the crowd. Trot coiled Brockwell's edge but gave him missed a difficult chance. This brought Brockwell to life and he began to open his shoulders. He moved into double figures and the two batsmen developed a partnership, taking the score past 100. However, just as a bowling change was being considered, Brockwell hit a ball back to Trot, who accepted the catch. Peel came in having scored a duck in the first innings and repeated Brockwell's dismissal first ball. This completed Peel's pair and also meant that Trott had five wickets on debut. Ford came in, hitting two fours and a five off Giffen, but Be- became another victim of Trot when he clipped a ball into Harry Trot's hands. Briggs and Lockwood both fell cheaply to Trot, leaving the English on nine for 130. Sodder, having held out the other end, was joined by Richardson. Richardson hit Giffen twice for boundaries, but the Australian captain had the last laugh, dismissing Richardson for 12 and ending on 143. Sodder was undefeated on 34 as his side suffered a Mammoth 382 run loss. Albert Trott was the star, finishing with 8 for 43 and 27 overs, outstanding figures for a debutant, and making a tidy profit given the offer from the beginning of the day. This result kept the Australians in the series, bringing the scoreline to 2-1, heading into the fourth test at Sydney, beginning in just over two weeks. The Australians made three changes. Turner returned after missing the previous test, whilst Harry Moses and Harry Graham were both selected. Giffen was vocal against the inclusion of Moses, preferring his South Australian compatriot lions, who was overruled by the other selectors. Out went Harry, Worrell and Callaway, despite the lads' excellent performance with the ball in the previous test. Once again, the English were unchanged. They were, however, carrying a handicap with Lockwood having suffered an injury to his hand from an exploding soda bottle. Whilst he was able to bowl, he would be unable to bat. Stoddart determined that it was worth keeping him for his bowling alone. Rain had fallen overnight, leaving the pitch in a perilous state. As such, when Stoddart won the toss, he made the rare decision of bowling first, hoping to take advantage of the conditions. The now familiar pair of Harry, Trott and Bruce opened for the Australians, whilst Peel and Richardson commenced for the English. Sotter's decision to bowl was rewarded almost immediately, as Trot hit a ball in the air towards point off Peel, where Brown took a catch low down, although Trot disputed the legitimacy of the take. This brought Giffen in to join Bruce. Richardson attempted to bowl with a nine-man offside field, but Bruce smartly worked many balls to leg to move the score on. Richardson, however, was quite dangerous, managing to hit Giffen on his back. This meant Bruce attempted to take on Peel, leading to his downfall, skying a ball to Brockwell. Bruce, who had made 15, was replaced by Moses. However, only six runs later with the score at 26, the Australians lost both batsmen, with first Giffen, then Moses being bowled. one each to Peel and Richardson. Four wickets had fallen and only 45 minutes of play. This brought together the pairing of Graham and Gregory. Graham lived up to his nickname of the Little Dasher, counterpunching punching by twice walking at the speeds of Richardson and sending him to the leg boundary. Gregory was more circumspect, taking 15 minutes to get off the mark. Briggs was tried and kept things tight, with the Australians managed to get through to lunch with only 50 on the board, but without losing another wicket. Disaster struck in the first over after the break. Gregory left his crease to attack Briggs, but missed the ball, leading to him being stumped for five. Next ball, new batsman Iredale drove one back to the bowler, who took a smart catch. This left the Australians at a precarious 6 for 51, with many in the crowd despondent at their team's fortunes. However, Darling joined with Graham, and with the pitch improving, the two began to resurrect the innings. Both batsmen hit Peel to the point boundary. Darling then hit a monster shot, launching Briggs out of the ground onto the tennis courts, a shot measured at over 100 metres. At the other end, Graham was living dangerously. By the time he had reached 37, he had been dropped three times, including by the usually reliable Briggs off his own bowling. He capitalised by hitting the next two balls to the fence. These shots brought up the Team 100, whilst Graham followed up soon after by bringing up his 50. He was then dropped for a fourth time, with Briggs failing to haul in a skied ball off Richardson. Darling then also survived a drop chance, but Richardson finally ended his innings on 31 when he's bowled off his pads. The two batsmen had put on 68 runs are better than a runner ball. This brought Albert trott at the crease, with score on 7 for 119. At this point, the scoring rate increased even more. Both batsmen played with daring, attacking all the bowlers equally. The partnership would take the score on to 192 at the team interval, scoring 73 runs in only 50 minutes of batting. Trott was a dominant partner, scoring 40, whilst Graham managed to move his score onto 87, including another drop chance, his fifth at the innings, this time by Brockwell. The tea break did not change the batsman's intentions, with the partnership taking 19 runs off the first two overs, with Trott passing 50. Soon after, Graham brought up his century, his second in tests, soon after by hitting Peel to the square league boundary. This brought a great cheer from the crowd who saw Graham as having saved the innings. His luck ran out soon after, however, as Briggs coaxed him from his crease to have him stumped for 105. He had batted for almost two and a half hours and struck 14 boundaries. The partnership Graham had shared with Trott was worth 112 and taken the Australians to 8 for 231. Briggs struck soon after having Jarvis caught behind for 5. This wicket was significant as it meant that Briggs had become the first player to ha- take 100 test wickets. This brought the man who was just behind him on the wicket taking charts, Turner, to the crease. The final wicket partnership between Trott and Turner would add a further 45 to the score before Turner was dismissed by Lockwood for 22. This left Trott undefeated on 85 having batted for just on two hours with nine fours. Briggs had four wickets, Peel had three and Richardson two for the tourists as the Australians posted 284 with the last four wickets putting on 233 runs. The English still had a short time to negotiate before stumps. They opened for McLaren and Ward whilst Harry Trott and Turner began for the Australians. The unconventional decision to begin with Trott paid dividends as his loopy leg spinners caused McLaren to drag his foot from his crease to be smartly stumped by Jarvis with only two runs on the board in the first over. Briggs and Ward set out the rest of the day leaving the English at one for 11. Day 2 was a complete washout, with play resuming after the rest day. The pitch was an even worse state than being at the beginning of Day 1. Turner had the ball doing unpredictable things on the treacherous pitch. two batsmen managed to scratchly get the score onto 20 before Turner claimed the wicket of Ward, with the bowler collecting return catch down around his ankles. The second wicket partnership of 18 would end up being the biggest of the innings. Briggs fell soon after the Harry Trot, bowling with a big spinning leg break for the 11. Sutter became Trot's third victim soon after, being expertly stumped by Jarvis with a score at 31. From here, the English would continue to lose regular wickets. Brown would hold up one end, but would continually lose his partners, no one else scoring above four runs. Trott would be replaced by Giffen and, in partnership with Turner, would take the remaining wickets. The English would end on 65 off only 39 overs, with Brown defined on 20 not out. Trott, Turner and Giffen all claimed three wickets as the took a commanding 219 run lead. Giffen had little hesitation in asking the English to follow on. Brown and Ward opened in the second innings. Brown, who had batted so well in the first innings, played a booming drive to a given yorker off the fourth ball of the innings, losing his off stump without a run on the board. Captain Stoddart batted for 14 minutes without scoring before launching a turner ball into the leg side, where he was well caught by Aydel. New batsman McLaren then fell in the next over to Given without a run, being added for a magnificent one-handed catch by Bruce at midwicket. Things were now three for five, which soon after would become five for 14, as first Ward and then Peel were dismissed. Peel completing a second consecutive pair in the Test matches. Brockwell was then joined by Ford. The two batsmen started to rebuild the innings by hitting boundaries but was a fleeting partnership, with Brockwell being dismissed by Turner for 17 with a score on 29. Turner's third wicket for the innings also gave him his 100th in test cricket, the second man to do so and the first Australian, a fitting accomplishment for the great bowler. From here, the result was inevitable. The final three wickets put up some resistance, but with Given taking two and Turner one of the wickets, the innings were aimed with a score on 72, leading to a thumping Australian victory by an innings of 147 runs. Given and Turner had bowled unchanged through the 29 overs of the innings, with Given completing another Fifer, whilst Turner claimed 4. From 2-0 down, the Australians had clawed their way back to 2-2, with the final match to be played in Melbourne in a month's time. This mirrored the progression of the series between the two sides a decade earlier in 1884-85, while the Australians would be hoping to win the final match this series as opposed to the result in that one. Before the final test, the English continued their tour games and featured against combined New South Wales and Queensland side in the match in Brisbane. Captained by Percy McDonnell and featuring Conyngham, Iredale, Gregory, Turner and Callaway, the combined side was comprehensively beaten by 278 runs. The highlight for the combined side was the bowling of right arm medium bowler Tom McKibben, who took five wickets in the second innings. McKibben, from New South Wales, had only made his debut that season, but had already made an impression, being second on the wicket takers in the Sheffield Shield to George Giffen. These performances saw him called up to the test squad for the final test. JJ Lyons was also added to the squad with Moses going out. The final call for the 11 came down to Lyons and, surprisingly, Turner. Despite taking 7 wickets in the previous match and being the leading all-time Australian bowler, there was concern that Turner underperformed on hard pitches, which the MCG was shaping up to be. The controversial decision was made to leave Turner out of the decider. Turner was incensed and vowed never to play for Australia again. He finished his career at the age of 32 with an astonishing 101 wickets in only 17 tests with an average of 16.53. He took 11 five-wicket innings and two 10-wicket matches in his career, and was particularly devastating in English conditions, with his first two tours in 1888 and 1890 producing incredible results. Across all first-class matches, he would take 993 wickets. He would play another two years of Shield cricket, but his effectiveness was diminished, only taking three wickets across four matches. He would continue on as an administrator in cricket for years to come, living into his 80s until he passed away in 1944. Turner was named as one of the 12 greatest New South Wales cricketers in 2007, whilst he was also admitted to the Australian Cricket Hall of Fame in 2013. The English were certainly not complaining about the absence of the terror. For the fourth time in a row, they went in unchanged. Given won the toss and literally jumped for joy, choosing to bat. Once again, Bruce and Harry trot opened against Richardson and Peel. Richardson's pace troubled both batsmen, with the speedster to splitting Bruce's bat, whilst trot edged one to forward its slip, only for the fielder to drop it. The two openers managed to keep the scoreboard ticking over, however, and moved the score onto 40 before Bruce felt appeal, hitting a ball to McLaren, who completed the catch on the second attempt. Bruce had contributed 22, as he was replaced by the captain, Giffen. Giffen continued to build the score in partnership with Trott, bringing up 70 runs at the end of the first hour, but from here the scoring slowed significantly, as the English tightened the bowling and fielding. The Australians managed to get through the second hour before lunch without losing a wicket, but were still short of 100 runs. The East continue in the same vein after lunch, with desperate fielding efforts preventing the Australians from finding the boundary. The 100 finally came up at quarter to three. Trot in particular had struggled, unable to pierce the field with his off-driving. He attempted to whip a straight one from Briggs to square leg, but missed to be bowled for 42. New batsman Iredale couldn't find any fluency, taking 40 minutes to score eight runs, but he was bowled by an off-cutter from Richardson. Given and managed to pass 50 with a rare boundary, but fell shortly after for 57, playing a ball onto his wicket from Peel. This left the Australians at 4 for 142, as Darling joined St Gregory at the wicket just before the tea break. There was concern in the crowd the Australians now wouldn't make 300, despite the advantageous nature of the wicket. Following tee, Darling attempted to increase the scoring rate and was successful, although he did have some luck with many of his drives being uppish in nature. Gregory had made his way to 19 before edging a ball to Ford at slip. For the second time that day, Ford spilled the catch. This seemed to release the shackles, as he took 13 off a of Brockwell over. Both batsmen feasted on some wide bowling outside off with ferocious cut shots. Darling motored to 46 and survived a missed chance by the English wicket keeper. Both batsmen passed 50 within a couple of minutes of each other as their partnership passed 100. Sodott rotated his bowlers with little impact as the Australians began to build an imposing total. Both Darling and Gregory would reach 70 just before stumps, with Darling pulling ahead with his last shot of the day. The Australians ended the day on 4 for 282. With strong batting still to come, the home side was well placed to build a motive total heading into day 2. An enormous crowd for the time flocked to the second day, with over 28,000 passing through the turnstiles, hoping to see the continuation of Australian dominance, as to be expected with two well-set batsmen. However, with only four runs added to the overnight score, both batsmen would be dismissed. Darling edged the ball from Peel into the slips, where Ford somewhat made up for his drops from the previous day, dismissing the South Australian for 74. His father, who had travelled especially to Melbourne to watch his son's innings, did end up saving having to buy in the 25 guinea watch he had promised his son if he could make a century. Gregory then fell to Richardson, faintly edging a ball to the keeper to be out for 70. The two had doubled the score the team had been on when they had joined in partnership, but now with both dismissed it was again an opportunity for the English to capitalize. At 6 to 286, Graham joined Lyons. Graham started with a lovely leg lance for 4, but was dismissed shortly after for 6. This brought Albert Trot to decrease. At the other end, Lyons had started shakily, hitting several balls at catchable height. After a time though, he settled, progressing the score past 300 with a series of characteristic boundaries. Trott, for the first time in his short career, failed to get a handle on the English bowling, struggling to 10 before being dismissed for a catch in the covers off Peel. Jarvis joined Lyons and the 2,000 Australians built a solid partnership. Jarvis stepped across to some wide bowling outside off to pull a boundary to square league, whilst Lyons hit Richardson for successive fours, with only McLaren's excellent fielding saving a third. He passed 50 and looked set for a big score, but the change to the slower pace of Lockwood proved his downfall, edging a ball to the keeper to be out for 55. The score was now 9-367 as debutant McKibben came to the wicket. Despite little being expected of him, he batted well, helping to get through to lunch without losing another wicket. Jarvis and McKibben continued after lunch, bringing up the 400. The two would end up putting on 47 for the 10th wicket before McKibben's innings ended on 23, falling to Briggs. Jarvis ended up 34 not out as the Australians posted an imposing 414. Once again, Peel and Richardson were the lead bowlers for the English, claiming 4 and 3 wickets respectively. Stoddart fielded with his usual openers, sending Brockwell to up to open with Ward. This was not successful, as after only 10 minutes, Harry Trott tempted Brockwell from his crease, only to have him stumped by Jarvis of five. This brought Stoddart in at number three. The two batsmen settled on a plan of defence first, hoping to tie the bowlers out. Ward in particular batted slowly, only scoring seven runs in 40 minutes batting. The two batsmen worked hard, getting through the Trott brothers and Giffen as they slowly began to build the innings. Giffen then turned to the debutant McKibben, who should have had a wicket in his first over, but Trott failed to hold a catch at point off Ward. From here, the innings began to shift. Stoddart, who had been batting much more fluently than his partner, took his score onto 50. The innings moved past 100, but it was here that Stoddart made his first mid-judgment, jumping out to a loopy leg break from Harry Trott. The ball gripped and turned past the bat, where Jarvis completed a narrow stumping. The English captain was dismissed for 68. He was replaced by Brown, but soon after, with a score on 112, Ward also fell, becoming McKibben's first test wicket. Ward attempted to play back to an off-spinning delivery, but missed to be bowled for 32. The were now three down, still trailing by over 300 runs, as McLaren entered to join Brown. McLaren immediately looking comfortable at the wicket, continuously turning McKimmons' off breaks into the leg side for easy runs. He also looked comfortable driving the ball fluently through the offside. Brown also looked confident, striking five boundaries in a 38-minute stay, but was out for 30 when he missed a ball from Albert Trott that went on to rattle the stumps. He had shared a 54-run partnership with McLaren, taking the score on 4-for-166. Newman Peel was coming off four successive ducks in the tests. However, he managed to get the off the mark, and the two batsmen managed to see through the stumps, with the English on an even 200. They still trailed by 214, but with McLaren not out on 40, they had a good chance of challenging the Australian's first inning total. Fans again flocked to the MCG for day three, following the usual Sunday rest day, with 20,000 in attendance. They almost saw a wicket fall first ball, as McKibben beat McLaren off the pitch, but missed the stumps only by a minuscule amount. Apart from that scare, McLaren batted with great confidence, playing all around the wicket. Peel also batted strongly and dominated the early scoring. McLaren went past 50 and the score passed 250. Albatross had two shells of lbw turned down, whilst Peel, who had made his way to 48, was dropped by Iredale. At this point, the mutterings in the crowd regarding the non-selection of Turner began to grow louder, especially as Giffen was seemingly well below his best. This was compounded when the Australian captain dropped a return chance for McLaren when he was on 69. Peel passed his own 50 and was chasing down McLaren's score when lunch was taken, with McLaren on 78 and Peel 66, with the English having made their way to 295. After lunch, the cloud began to clamour for the return to the bowling crease of Harry Trott. Given held him back, though, due to his belief that Trott couldn't bowl to left-handers such as Peel without going for bulk runs. Given cycled through all these other bowlers as his score passed 300. McLaren, taking advantage of the flagging bowling, managed to take his score past the century mark, made in just under three hours, his first such score in Test Cricket. However, finally for the Australians, the partnership was broken soon after, with Peel falling for 73 when he hit a ball from Giffen to Gregory at mid-off. He hit seven fours and put on 162 with McLaren, leaving the English at 5 for 328, less than 100 short of the Australian total. New batsman Lockwood started with a lovely late cut for 4, but fell for 5 as Giffen moved Harry Trott into short mid-on, where Lockwood immediately hit a catch to that fielder off the Australian captain's bowling. Giffen finally relented to the wishes of the crowd and returned Harry Trott to the bowling crease. McLaren was again missed on 114 as Giffen dropped a return chance, but the English batsman was now running out of partners. Trott managed to get the edge of new batsman Ford's bat, but Giffen dropped it at slip. This drop didn't end up costing the Australians too much as Ford fell for 11 to Giffen. McLaren was finally dismissed for 120 without a run being added, attempting to pull the ball from Harry Trott, only to stand on his wicket. He batted for just over three and a half hours and hit 12 fours. Things were now 8 for 364, soon to be 9 for 366, as Briggs didn't trouble the scorers. The final pair of Richardson and Phillipson managed to take the score on to 385 before Harry Trott trapped Richardson LBW. The English had done well in only conceding a 29-run lead, but would have ruined their late-order collapse that otherwise would have given them the advantage. Harry Trott and Giffen had both ended with four wickets, but Giffen had been expensive, going for 130 runs in 45 overs. Storms threatened as the Australians came out for their second innings, but would stay away, allowing the rest of the day's play. Harry Trott and Bruce opened and began cautiously. They reached 30 runs after 40 minutes of batting. Giffen, under the pretext of changing Bruce's bat, came out to ask his openers to force the issue. This backfired immediately, as Bruce was out second ball after the bat change, hitting a return catch to Peel, out for 11. Giffen came out again, this time as a number three bat, I reverted to the original plan of batting time. The remaining out of place saw the score move on to only 69, but they had retained the nine wickets, with Trot not out 37 and Given on 14. They took a lead of 98 into day four. Dust storms drifted across the MCG throughout day 4, limiting the attendance to a still respectable 13,500 people. Trott began the day with an edge for 4, but was then out soon after, being clean bowled by Peel for 42. He was replaced by Iredale. Giffen, meanwhile, had also started with 4 behind point, but then stonewalled, looking to wear out the bowling. The dust made batting difficult, but the Australians stuck to their task, slowly taking the score past 100. Noting their moods, Soddard set his field so as to restrict the singles, hoping to encourage a risky shot. This paid off for the score at 125 when idale swung wildly the ball from richardson and only managing to edge the ball back onto his shoe before it ricocheted onto his stumps gregory came to the crease at number five to partner his captain both batsmen managed to hit richardson for fours before lunch was taken with a score of three for 139. following lunch giffen reached his second 50 of the match but fell when he side needed a big score with richardson rattling another set of stumps his 51 had taken right on three hours to compile he was replaced by darling Gregory and Darling looked to repeat their successful partnership from the first innings, although they adopted the cautious tactics of their teammates, mostly working in singles and twos. They put on 30 runs in 45 minutes, and finally looked comfortable before Gregory was bowled for 30 by a splendid Richardson delivery that pitched outside off and cut back to hit leg. Lyons came in and took the score to an even 200 before Briggs bowled him. Graham came in next and copped a heavy ball to the thigh from Richardson. He responded by swinging the next ball to the leg side for a boundary. Along with Darling, he managed to see the Australians through to tee at 6 for 218. Refreshed from the teabake, Richardson was proving to be a game changer. First grain was trapped LBW for 10. This was then followed up by a second ball duck for Albert Trott, clean bowled by the Speedster, giving him his fifth wicket for the innings. This left the Australians at 8 for 219. At the other end, Darling remained circumspect at first, trusting in his state teammate Jarvis to hold out his end. Once he was confident, Darling then went on the attack, hitting Briggs out of the attack while also striking Richardson for consecutive fours. This brought Darling to his 50. This was be his final act though, the attempt to hit Peel out of the ground, only to be bowled. The Cuban joined Jarvis and the two progressed to score on 267 before Richardson claimed his sixth wicket of the innings. This left the English with 297 runs needed to claim the series. The Australians underperformed with the bat compared to expectations, but the matches were still anyone's to claim. England's second inning started out in the same fashion as its first. Brockwell hit his first ball for four, but was out shortly after, bunting a ball back to Giffen. Stoddart joined Ward and was almost out upon arrival, nicking a ball from Harry Trott just in front of Giffen at slip. The two batsmen managed to see out the rest of the day without further incident, and in the day at one for 28, still needing 269 for victory. Day five started with morning showers, giving the Australians hope that the pitch would become difficult for batting. However, it was only enough rain to bind up the cracks in the pitch, making it a better batting surface than the previous day. The rain didn't keep the crowds away, with another 14,000 in attendance, taking the total over 100,000 for the match, the most for any test to that point. Harry Trot had the first over, and to delight the, the crowd struck Stoddart on the pad with his first ball. A vociferous appeal went up, and the umpire obliged, sending the English captain back without a run being added. The Australian players jumped for joy, while Stoddart left the field with his head in his hands, feeling his dismissal would cost his side victory. Brayon came out to replace his captain, joining the not-out batsman Ward. He edged his first ball, but it fell just short of slip. This nearly mishearten the Australians, but Brown was soon to dash those hopes. Soon after, Brown sent a ball to point fence for four. This would be the first of many such blows as he would play in innings that would go on to define the match. With a threat of rain about, Brown went to work. Despite some excellent ground fielding from the Australians, there was not enough of them to stop his shots from piercing the gaps. When the score reached 60, Brown had 30 of them, despite coming in at number four. His partner Ward was playing a much more sober innings, but equally vital to allow Brown the freedom to continue in the same vein. Giffen and Harry Trott provided no troubles for Brown and neither did the replacement bowlers Albert Trott and McKibben. Brown reached his 50 after only 30 minutes of batting. The change of bowlers also allowed Ward more freedom and he too began to accelerate his scoring. Giffen attempted to strengthen the offside field by moving Bruce from mid on but Brown simply shifted his scoring zone to the vacant spot. The 100 partnership was raised after only an hour with Brown having made 80 of these. When lunch was taken soon after, the Australians were shell-shocked struggling for ideas about how to contain the damage. Albert Trott commenced after lunch and nearly struck with a flashing blade of Brown sending a ball just out of reach of Giffen and Iredale in the slips. Brown then moved through the 90s with three consecutive fours, bringing up the century with a sweep shot. The crowd cheered the exhilarating batting, with his 100 having taken only an hour. The mutterings in the crowd about the absence of Turner were getting louder, especially as none of the Australian bowlers looked like affecting a wicket. Ward reached his own 50 soon after, as the score approached 200. He played at a ball from Albert Trott, which went through to the keeper. The Australians appealed in unison, but were rejected by the umpire to the disgruntlement of many. Brown took the English to win in sixty year victory before he was finally dismissed, edging a ball from McKibben to Giffen at slip. Brown had made 140 runs at a run a minute and hit 16 fours, putting on a match-winning partnership of 210 with Ward. With seven wickets still in hand, McLaren joined Ward and looked just as confident as he had in his first inning century. He dealt in singles, however, hoping to leave enough runs for Ward to get his own century. The opener managed to make his way to 93 before he got caught in two mines against Harry Trott to be bowled. His innings had lasted over three hours and been the perfect fall to Brown's great knock. The final 20 runs were polished off with ease by McLaren and new batsman Peel, leading to a six-wicket victory. This result gave the English a well-deserved 3-2 series win. The series had been a tightly-fought one, but the superior bowling of the English was probably the deciding factor. Richardson was the start, taking 32 wickets at 26, and was well-supported by Peel with 27 and Briggs with 15. The Australians were led by their captain Giffen with 34, whilst Turner claimed 18 in only three matches. The lack of consistent supporting threats to the Australians outside the big two of Giffen and Turner meant they would always struggle if those two were off their game. On the batting side, Brown, Warden and Sutter all averaged over 39 for the English, while Giffin stood out for the Australians, making 475 runs, whilst Gregory with 362 and Iredale with 337 were also strong contributors. The English still had first-class matches against Victoria and South Australia before their tour ended. Against Victoria, they lost by seven wickets, mainly down to Harry Trott's eight for 63, that decimated the English for first innings, In the match against South Australia, newcomer Clem Hill scored his maiden first-class century batting at number 8, but this was dwarfed by a double century from Ward and hundreds from Brown and Ford, leading the English to end their tour with a 10-wicket victory. Overall, the English won 8 of the 12 first-class matches played on tour. They were supported with great further back home, and scores of people would gather around newspaper offices to hear the results cable back from Australia. The English side-left with a reputation as high as any that come before it, having drawn record crowds to the test matches and won key moments from great odds, including in the first and last test matches. The 1894-95 summer was an important one in the history of Australian cricket. It proved that the excitement of the previous tour wasn't just a product of W.G. Grace's presence, but that cricket was a key part of the Australian sporting summer. It also showed that even in times of economic turmoil, people would turn out to see their sporting heroes, not as they would for Bradman during the Great Depression. Furthermore, it marked the end of an era and the beginning of a new one. Old heroes in Blackham and Turner played their last test this summer, whilst Giffen would only play one series more. New faces came into cricket which would become synonymous with the next era. Joe Darling had already come onto the scene, whilst Clem Hill was pushing for selection. A New South Wales all-rounder named Monty Noble had debuted on a New South Wales tour of New Zealand early in 1894 and played his first Shield game in early 1895. And on the 5th of January that year, a 17-year-old kid from Sydney made an inauspicious debut, scoring 11-0 against South Australia, a far cry from the player that would trump all others in the next era of Australian Test cricket. Thank you for listening. New episodes of Endless Summons will be released fortnightly. Please subscribe to be notified of new releases. You can also follow us on Twitter at pod underscore endless, and you can email us at endlesssummerpod at gmail.com.